When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezan of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. It's like a summary. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shabashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Reason and Aram, and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Well, yet, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of human beings? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices, in the rocks, on the, all the thorn bushes and at all the water holes. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hide from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and the hair of your legs and to take off your beards also. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. Because of the abundance of the milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines with a thousand silver shekels, there will only be briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills, once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, 
And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, thank you for your word, the Bible. God, we pray that you teach us from it right now. Change us to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is one of three, a three-part Christ, Christmas sermon series. It's a bit new. It's a bit different. I'm excited. It was nice to sing carols today, a couple of weeks early. Feels like Christmas, doesn't it? And the theme is the thrill of hope. Well, it's actually the thrill of certain hope. You can see there what we see what we've done there. Um, tricky. Today we're going to look at an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah that looks forward to the New Testament, and we're going to look at where it lands in the New Testament and what it means for us. And I think today is going to kind of change the way you think about Christmas in a good way, kind of a negative way, but a good way. Um, Now, hope is obviously a big theme in our Bible passages today, otherwise we wouldn't have chosen them because that's the whole theme of these last three weeks. Hope's a big theme, but so is fear. Fear's a big theme as well, and it was really interesting and really helpful And what Sarah Sarah talked about in her testimony about security. And we didn't plan that in advance. We just, you know, it's God at work. Um, security in life, hope and fear. What do you hope for? What, do you, what is your hope in? What things are you afraid of? Uh, what things are anxiety-inducing? Is fear and hope mutually exclusive? Does hope drive out fear uh, from your life? Do we need more hope to get rid of the fear? Perhaps. Um, let me ask you, what are some things that you put your hope in? Perhaps it's the Socceroos. Socceroos did really well, didn't they? If you were following it, maybe you won't, and that's okay. Um, But they lost, didn't they? They lost, they're gone. They're home. They're back in Australia while the World Cup goes on. So, no good, Socceroos lost, unlucky. Perhaps it's the government and their promises to create a perfect utopia for all their citizens to live in. Well... Experience tells us they can't possibly create a perfect utopia for all of us to live in. And the Bible tells us, well, their heavenly mandate really is to just do their best to withhold evil. That's kind of what they're there to do. Now, our government does a pretty good job, mostly. Perhaps your hope is in money and more money. If you just had some more money, then, you know, be happy. Well, history has shown that there is one thing that people with lots of money want. What is it? More. More money. Uh, Ecclesiastes, great book to read, Ecclesiastes celebrates neither poverty nor riches. Enough money is great. No money is not great. Too much money. A third of the parables talk about money. A third of the parables that Jesus tells talk about money and warn us against the perils of too much money. Perhaps your hope is in money. Or perhaps it's in education. There's a nice picture of our school that we're in. If we can just get our kids to have the right, best Christian, perhaps, education they need, then they'll be set up for life and they'll be okay. They'll be safe and they'll be okay. Well, again, education is good, important, but it's not the silver bullet. 
in life, is it? It's not going to solve the world's problems. Finally, is your hope in health and perhaps our health system? Your own ability to stay fit and healthy and live longer and longer and longer. Well, as good as our health system is, we know anything can happen to our health at any time despite how healthy we are. It's good to be healthy, don't get me wrong, as much as you can, but is our hope in our health? Well, now here's another question. Do you fear all these things? Do you fear the government and the decisions they're making? Do you fear, are you scared your kids won't get a good enough education? Are you frightened that your health perhaps will fail you? Are you scared that you don't have enough money coming in, enough money on the table? Are these things fear-inducing? A couple of questions. Is our hope in these things? Do these things instill fear in you? And secondly, where should our hope be? Is there anything worth fearing? Chris, you're doing a great job of reading my mind so far, just saying. Um, So we're coming to point one, which is King Ahaz and his misplaced fear. The central character in the beginning of our true story from the Bible today is King Ahaz. It's the year 735 BC, and the world kind of looks like this. So Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he's the green down the bottom. He's the king of God's people who are left. The 12 tribes of Israel that were united under Solomon's rule, well, Solomon failed, and the 12, right, 12 tribes of Israel split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom, which is kind of the orange. Go back. Go back. You're going forwards. Go back. Leave it there. Um, so the northern kingdom, ten tribes, uh, formed up the kingdom of Israel, and they, they very much assimilated with the pagan nations around them and very much gave up on God. The southern kingdom of Judah kind of hung in there, uh, trusting in God for a while. But we can see here that King Ahaz is starting to go a bit wobbly. Now, what's happening is uh, the kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim, as it's also referred to as, the capital is Samaria. The king is Pekah, Pekah, son of Remaliah. And then further to the north in the red is Syria, or Aram, the capital of Damascus, their king, Rezin. So next slide. Further to the north is this awesome might of the Assyrians. So the purple, pinky purple, is the Assyrian Empire in 745 BC, and by 701 BC, it's green. It's just rapidly expanded, and we learned at the start that, if the bottom left is their little kidney, um, we learned that Syria and Israel get wiped out by Assyria ultimately, and this is their concern. So Syria and Israel, or Ephraim, have formed this anti-Assyrian pact. They've kind of gone, we need to team up here because Assyria is just getting too powerful. And they've said to Judah, help us out. Help us out against the Assyrians before we all get smashed. And Ahaz is going, no way. I'm not going to help you against the Assyrians. That's madness. But at the same time, he's not trusting in God. So Syria and Israel have said to Judah, we're going to come in and we're going to knock you out and we're going to put in a puppet king who will do what he's told. So that's what's happening. Does that make sense? So they're scared of the Assyrians way north, and rightly so, and they've said to Judah, come on, join us against the Assyrians, and Ahaz, king of Judah, is going, no, no way. So with that in mind, let's read the passage again. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, 
King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remali, king of Israel, the two to the north, marched up to fight against Jerusalem because he wouldn't do what he was told, but they couldn't overpower it because God's with Ahaz. Now the house of David, Judah, was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, the two in the north. The hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. They're scared as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Why are they scared? They've got God on their side. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shiab Jashub, and meet Ahaz, the end of the aqueduct, the upper pool on the road to the laundress field. Say, Don't panic. <laughs> be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid, Ahaz. Don't lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood up there. In God's eyes, that's all they are two smouldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of reason and Aram and the son of Remaliah, they've plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let's tear apart, divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tobiel king of it. But the sovereign Lord says it's not going to happen. It won't take place, it won't happen. The head of Aram's Damascus, the head of Damascus only resin. Within 65 years, they're all going to be smashed. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you too won't stand at all. So you can see what's happening. They're marching against Judah, against Ahaz, because he's not doing what he's told. And God at this point is with Ahaz, and God's saying to Ahaz, don't panic. Don't worry about them. I'm here. I've got this. Don't freak out. God's not phased by these people. Look again at verse 4. God says to Ahaz, don't panic. I say to our kids, whatever you do, what don't you do? Panic. That's right. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. As far as God is concerned, these two nations with their armies are just smouldering stubs of firewood, burnt out, lifeless, useless, ready to be thrown away. God is the God of the universe. Ahaz, whatever you do, don't panic. Yahweh, the God of the nations, is with you. Aram and Ephraim are going to be blotted out within three generations. And then there's the warning there at the end. If you do not stand firm in your faith, if you choose to panic, if you choose not to trust in the Lord, well, you'll be judged along with them. Verse 10. And I'd love to say Ahaz believed Isaiah and he calmed down and he trusted in God and he prayed and God delivered him. But that's not what he did. We read on the screen, go back. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I won't ask. I'll not put the Lord to the test. Now, leave it there for a bit. Notice that it says, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. The first time in the passage, it was Isaiah passing on a message from the Lord. Isaiah spoke to, he met him at the end of the thing and spoke to him. But now it says, the Lord spoke directly to Ahaz. This is a direct commandment from from God to Ahaz. Parents, you know those moments when Two of your kids, if you've got three, two of your kids are squabbling in another room and it's getting out of control. You send the older one in there to calm it down. Can you go in there and tell them to settle down? It's getting out of hand. And so the older one goes in there and they tell them to settle down and they don't. 
And so then you have to go in there. And you go in there and you say, Oi, I sent your brother in here and you, haven't, you need to calm down. This is getting out of hand, right? It's one of those moments. He sent Isaiah to tell him to calm down. It didn't work. So now the Lord himself's gone in there and said, Calm down, would you? Don't panic. Ask me for a sign, any sign you like, from the bottom of the ocean to the sky. What do you want? Ask me for a sign, I'll show you a sign and show you that you can trust me. Ahaz says, no, (laughs) I won't. And then he says something that sounds kind of nice. I wouldn't test you like that, God. Well, that's nice, except for the fact that God commanded it. Ask me for a sign, I'm telling you. You're not trusting me, you're not listening to me. Ask me for a sign to prove to you, because obviously you need some serious proof, and I'm happy to do it, that you can trust me. He says, no, I won't do it. He chooses to panic. He chooses to give up on trusting God. In fact, Ahaz is absolutely despicable. He is such a low life. You can read about Ahaz in 2 Chronicles 28. He's awful. He worshipped the Baals. He sacrificed his own children in fire to pagan idols. He's horrendous. And towards the end of 2 Chronicles 28, you see he actually turns to the Assyrians for protection. Becomes like a vassal state, you know. Spare me and I'll do anything you like. Rather than trusting in God. He looks to the world power. looks to powers in the world to keep him safe. He puts his hope in them rather than his holy, holy, holy God. His fear of the enemy and his faithlessness smashes his hope and trust and faith. So the question remains, well, what's going to happen next? What's the Lord to do now with this nation such as it is? Well, God's response to Ahaz's stubborn faithlessness seems initially to be grace and hope. And we're right to be surprised at the depth of God's graciousness for God's graciousness defies human understanding. It's divine. He's a divinely gracious God, much more gracious than we ever could be or would be. He does offer hope when there is none in verse 13. Isaiah said, here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Isaiah, will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The thing, like, we're gonna, just about to read something that's really familiar about the virgin giving birth to a son. But think about the context. Like there's this despicable, disobedient, faithless king in the midst of this political turmoil, and Assyria is about to come down and just take out everyone. That's the context for the giving of this prophecy. And studying it this week has just really kind of opened my eyes to this this prophecy that we've read so many times in Matthew, probably. But we've got this context behind it that's really significant. There's this turmoil and this faithlessness is the context for this prophecy. This is the sign. God gives this faithless king. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 
He'll be eating curds and honey, not be very old, when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. He'll, he'll be just a child when he knows better than you. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, before even that, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Sounds good. This Saviour's going to come. He's called Emmanuel. He's got with us. That's nice. We kind of automatically think New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is coming. It's Christmas. Yay. There's angels and sheepies and it's lovely. Right? But this is the context for this prophecy. Is this turmoil and devastation and faithlessness. So we've got to study the passage a little more slowly. God's prophet is frustrated at God's people, especially his kings. God is as well. Is it not enough to try my patience yet? God as well. His eyes had no luck. God's had no luck himself with Ahaz. And God's response to this wicked king is this sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Who is the virgin? Who is the son? Well, in the Old Testament context, the virgin is Zion, the heavenly gathering of God's people. It's God's people that is the virgin. The northern kingdom has already turned away. The southern kingdom, Judah, is about to be assimilated into Assyria, but there is this pocket of God's faithful people within Judah left. Look at chapter 1 of Isaiah. Your country is desolate. It's on the screen. Your cities burn with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. So Zion is referred to as a young woman, one who is yet to marry and consummate her marriage. Daughter Zion, we've got the picture of who the, daughter, who the virgin is, it's Zion, God's people. God's people are being decimated by their enemies and God has allowed this because of their faithlessness. But there's this remnant of faithful people amidst God's nation. You with me so far? Daughter Zion is all that's left of God's people, a small pocket of God's people who in in effect give birth to this remnant of faithful ones. There's this little group of faithful ones left, this son of Zion, the son of the virgin. They're going to find themselves trapped in it. They're going to find themselves conquered by the Assyrians. But God is with them. God is still with them. They'll remain faithful because God is with them. This is important to get your head around. Understanding the Old Testament really grows your understanding of the New Testament and explodes your understanding of the New Testament, and particularly of who Jesus is and what he has done, and who he is as prophet, priest, and king. The Old Testament really helps you understand the new. God's people, even his kings are deserting him, but there's a faithful few are left, and they have a manual. They have God with them. God is with them, as he's always promised to be. You got that much? Now, now that we have that in mind... We fast forward 2,700 years to Matthew chapter 1. Sorry, sorry. Fast forward 700 years. And we have this prophecy again of this faithful son to come who will somehow rescue his people from this terrible situation they find themselves in. Now, fast forward 700 years 
to the time of Jesus, what's the terrible situation? Well, God's people are kind of pretty much imprisoned by the Roman Empire and they're being persecuted terribly. And there's this son who is to come. God says that the judgment on the two nations will be soon. And sadly, so will the judgment of Judah. So let's read on. The Lord will bring on you, verse 17. We've gone too far forward, I think. Um, The Lord will bring on you and on your people, there it is, on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, the kingdom divided. He will bring the king of Assyria. So there's a promise of judgment coming on on Judah, the nation of Judah. And as you read on the end of the chapter, I'm going to go into detail, it's all bad news pretty much. People's land's taken, they'll be shamed, their fields will turn to thorns and thistles, it's all bad for God's people, for God's nation. But it's really helpful to have this Old Testament background as we think about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, the coming of Jesus into the world. So now we come to point three, God's grace and judgment incarnate. God's grace, he promised the Saviour, and his judgment on his people for their faithlessness incarnate. God's grace and judgment came to earth in the form of a human baby boy. Why do I say grace and judgment? Well, let's look again at Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, but he was kind. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so he's going to divorce her quietly. But an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. you will give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Now, there's heaps of really interesting things in this passage. Uh, why does Matthew tell the whole story from Joseph's perspective? Joseph, Mary, Matthew doesn't even mention the fact that an angel appeared to Mary as well. Um, clearly, Joseph is a righteous man. Um, he thinks his wife's cheated on him before they're married, and rightly so, she's pregnant. Um, but he's not going to make a big scene. He wants to divorce her quietly. Um, but the angel comes to him and says, no, 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 go ahead with the marriage. And so he's a faithful man as well. He, he, he trusts the, ra- the angel and he goes ahead with the marriage. And he doesn't sleep with her until Jesus, after Jesus is born to fulfill the virgin will conceive, conceive and the virgin will give birth. Now, it's all interesting, but what I want us to focus on <laughs> is the last little bit. His name must be Jesus. Can you ever get another slide forward? Yep. He will save his people from their sins. Now, I've got a question. What kind of people need saving? Who needs saving? As an Aussie, I immediately think of this. The beach. People drowning, lifeguards, Right? There's people who they put their hand up, they're drowning, they need saving. People who need saving are people who are in distress, people who are in danger, people perhaps who could die. They're the ones who need saving. Jesus didn't come to save people from drowning. Jesus came into the world to save people from their sins. All people in the world and across the ages are sinners and have been ever since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. 
All people face the just judgment of God. All people in Gregory Hills and all people in Gledswood Hills and all people in the MacArthur and the world face the just judgment of God. And we need to remember that at Christmas. And it's great that we have a Christmas mission where we can go out in the community and do our very best, despite our fatigue at the end of the year, to share the gospel with a community that's perishing because of their sin. Christmas makes me feel good. I like fairy lights and I like giving and receiving gifts and I like getting together with my family and it's a happy time. But let's not let the good things, which are good, mask the reality that Jesus came into the world because of the judgment we all face, the penalty for sin that everyone faces. Jesus came into the world to save sinners And Jesus is the great saviour, the only saviour, who can save us from our sins. The passage goes on, it's on the screen. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded, took Mary home as his wife, didn't consummate the marriage until she gave birth to the son and gave him the name Jesus. Now, clearly... Jesus is the ultimate fulfilment of the one whom Isaiah spoke of. But knowing what we know now with the context of Isaiah 7, we understand that God with us is good and bad. God's come to judge and to save. Knowing what we know now, our hope needs to be in Christ alone. And our world's hope is in Jesus alone. Our world's governments are increasingly pagan, including ours. We now have changed abortion laws to make it a lot easier. We've, we've made homosexual unions legal in our country. We've made euthanasia legal in our country. Our, our country is increasingly pagan, increasingly anti-God. Our society is increasingly materialistic. We don't use our money to honour God in our culture. We use our money to honour ourselves and to make ourselves more comfortable. We look to health system, the health system to prolong our lives and prolong our youthful looks rather than look to God. The birthday got older just the other day. Rather than look to God to increase our wisdom and increase our love for our neighbour. And as for sport, <laughs> is there a bigger idol in the world than sport? The World Cup's on. I'm enjoying it. It's fun to watch. Some of those players are paid over $100 million a year to play football. $100 million a year to play soccer. Like, it's that's where it's got to. Is there a bigger idol in our world than sport? Much like the world in Isaiah's day, Our world is a world that is bent against God, shaking its fist at him, ignoring him, despising him. And our God laughs. The world's superpowers, China, the US, Russia, they're, they're smoldering stumps in the eyes of our almighty God. The coming of our Savior into the world is proof that the end is near for all people, for the faithful ones 
There will be an end to the heartache of living in a world that hates Jesus and doesn't want to know him. For those opposed to God, it will be a bitter end, an eternal judgment. So two things I want to say. First, what do we learn? Don't fear the world. Don't fear the world. Fear God. We don't need to fear the world. We're Christians. We don't need to fear the government, what they're doing. We don't need to fear our health or our finances or our children's education. Don't worry about those things so much. They're important things, but don't fear them. Fear God. Emmanuel, God is with us or to frighten us. God is, a, is an almighty God. Loving and just. We ought to be frightened unless our trust is in Jesus. In either case, we ought to be thrown to our knees in praise and awe of our God. Don't fear what decisions the politicians are doing. Pray for the government. If they're corrupt, God will judge them. We just saw that. King Ahaz. God owns, don't fear interest rate rises. Trust God with your finances. God owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. He'll provide for your every need. Pray and trust God. Might not provide for your every want, but he'll provide for your every need. Know that if your health ultimately fails, you'll be with the Lord in glory. For Paul to live as Christ and to die is gain. And parents, please, and I say this to us as much as anyone, please teach your kids the Bible as of highest priority. If you're a Christian parent and you're not reading the Bible to your kids, you're failing them and you're not fearing God enough. The best weapon and best armour in a world that is bent against our Saviour is the Word of God. Sam the Centurion's been teaching us that for weeks. Our kids need the armour of God and as parents... We're the primary disciples over them. We can bring them to church and that's good and we can send them to Christian schools and that's cool, but we are the primary disciples of our children. We need to teach them the Bible. It's not about busyness or tiredness. We're all busy and tired. It's about priorities. We need to prioritize teaching our kids the Bible as the highest priority. And if you need tips or advice, ask. Ask. God said to Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So second point, leave that one there. Don't pin your hopes to what the world has to offer. Put your hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus is a solid rock and a certain hope. We hope for good health. I hope for good health. We hope for good educations for our kids. Our kids seem to be going all right. They've got some awards in their presentation days. That's cool. But we might not have good health and they might not get good education. So that's okay. Hope in Jesus is certain. Jesus will not fail us, unlike the world around us. He will most certainly return. Hope in him will drive out fear of everything else. Hope in Christ will drive out fear of everything else. Certain hope drives out fear. Chris, thanks. Certain hope drives out fear. Are you anxious about the future? You should pray. And trust God and trust his timing. Are you trapped in sin? You should pray. 
Confess your sins and ask for help. Ask a trusted Christian friend to support you in repenting of your sin and the Holy Spirit will deliver you from your sin. Christians know that Emmanuel has come. God is with them. If you've come here today and your trust is not in Jesus, can I implore you to repent of your sin in the quiet of your heart today. Entrust your life to Jesus today. Know the certain hope that comes from having Jesus as your Lord. Friends, we have God with us. But many in our community and our lives do not. We need to pray for them. If you want to put your trust in Jesus today, can I invite all who are followers of Jesus and anyone who wants to become a follower of Jesus to pray this prayer in the quiet of your mind after me and say amen at the end. Let's all pray. Dear God, I know I have sinned against you. I do not always love others as I should. I do not always love you as I should. I am a sinner. I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me for my sin. Thank you that you do forgive me through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and glorious resurrection. Please help me to live for you and love others as I should from this day forth. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time genuinely in your heart, the angels in heaven are rejoicing. You are now a follower of Jesus. You are a Christian. You are saved. It's a wonderful blessing. Please let me know via the Connect card or let a trusted Christian friend know you put your trust in Jesus so we can help you with the next steps of what it means to follow Jesus.